0: Good morning, everybody, and thank you to Jeff for leading our worship this morning. We're very grateful that we have Billy to fill in, but we're glad Jeff is back. Speaking of thankfulness, I just had a couple notes I wanted to throw out there to you guys. Um, I want to just say a quick thank you to all the ladies who've helped with making the last few baby showers happen. I know we've had a few. I think rumor has it there might be one more. So I know that, you know, cakes and cupcakes don't order themselves, and tables don't decorate themselves, nor do the fellowship hall ever cleaned itself back up on its own so uh thank you to all those who have sort of supported and made those things happen i know uh the the women have appreciated that very much and then just another quick note uh, from marty if you are going to discovery park if you're going to discovery park number one make sure he knows and that you're in you've got your numbers in and all that stuff Uh, but also we will be meeting at the front gate of the park at 10 o'clock Soon as it opens because we need to figure out what we're doing for lunch and how kind of the plan for that day is going to go. So if you're going, make sure to meet the front gate 10 o'clock and Marty will issue any corrections to that announcement if I got it wrong. Um, And I guess one more. Uh, When Michael was struggling to read one of the announcements, that was mine. Um, I told him that we will need Bible class teachers because Priscilla will not be able to teach very much longer. Um... I think she's the only pregnant Bible class teacher that I know of. Not throwing anybody under the bus, but that's getting a little bit towards the end there, so she probably won't be able to teach much longer. So and of course we just need Bible class teachers, but we've been talking about that for a while. So just want everybody to be clear on that. This morning, we'll be studying cardiology. The title of our lesson this morning. Cardiology is the study of the heart. In medical terms, it usually entails the study of aorta and ventricles of the superior vena cava or the pulmonary trunk. Cardiology is important uh, because our heart is important, as you might imagine. If something is wrong with your heart, several things will very quickly be wrong with the rest of your body. As a mechanic, I've always kind of thought of the heart as the engine of the body. And if you take care of it, it will take care of you. If you neglect it, well, the, the body's version of the LS swap is not very easy can't just get a new heart but most of what can go wrong with our body is first caused with problems in our heart and in our passage this morning jesus says really that the same is true spiritually that whatever is wrong with us on the outside ultimately stems from a heart problem this morning we're in the middle of the sermon on the mount in matthew 5 And last week we focused on this little kind of in-between passage where Jesus says that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It's an important statement to remember as we continue our study this week because many people see Jesus' words there as sort of replacing or erasing the law. Remember that while, yes, as Christians, we, we do believe the law was nailed to the cross, at this time Jesus is very much alive in Matthew 5. And so what Jesus has to say about the law does not erase it, does not replace it, but he says, what I have to say about it fulfills its purpose. Jesus says that what he says speaks to the law's essential or innermost meanings, and we'll see how that's true as we study these passages together. I also want us to know that Jesus speaks with authority. He says, whoever relaxes one of these will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I'm sorry, whoever relaxes them will be the least, but whoever does them and teaches them They will be the greatest. He's saying that the law is important, but he's also saying that what he, Jesus, has to say about the law is just as important. He says it is critical to entering the kingdom of heaven. We studied verses 17 through 20 of Matthew 5 last week. We we concluded that Jesus says his followers must be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were focused on an external kind of righteousness. Righteousness. But Jesus was interested in the kind of cleanliness or the kind of holiness that was ultimately internal. He said he was focused on cleanliness of the heart, which sounds nice, right? It kind of sounds kind of spiritual, almost new agey in that way that some Christians are today. But what on earth does that mean? What does internal righteousness look like? Well, that's exactly what the rest of Matthew 5 is about. Jesus gives six examples Six examples in the rest of the chapter of of what inner righteousness looks like. And these are based on the law. He he, he teaches following sort of a formula. He says, over and over, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And over and over, he quotes a well-known or an often cited part of the law. And then then he offers an example of what true fulfillment of that law looks like. And we'll notice that Jesus' example, his example of living out the law often looks very different than what the Pharisees were doing. It looks very different than how the Pharisees carried out the law. You might remember in our lesson on the Beatitudes or on the good life, we we said that Jesus' criteria for good living is much higher than ours. Jesus' criteria, if we're being honest with ourselves, is probably very different than ours. the same thing is going on here he says my view of righteousness is not probably quite the view you have he says this is what you think obedience is but this is what obedience actually looks like in our service this evening in our nighttime service we'll take a look at sort of the context of some of these phrases jesus uses in matthew 5 of the passages he's describing and we'll kind of talk about how how he gets from their meaning in the old testament to the new testament and And we'll have a a good discussion, I think, on what Jesus' model of interpreting Scripture means for us today. So tonight we'll focus on interpretation, but this morning I want us to focus on application. I mentioned Jesus gives six examples. We'll go through all six. We'll probably spend a little more time on the first two and the last two than the middle two. But we'll begin as Jesus does in his lesson from Matthew five, verse twenty one with dealing with what is perhaps the most offensive sin, the most heinous or violent crime one person can commit against another, and that is murder. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21, You have heard it, that it was said, To those of old you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. We'll talk a little bit about Jesus' consequences for anger, for not being reconciled. But we'll start with focusing on those few verses up on the screen. Where Jesus begins by, by condemning not just killing, but he condemns three other things. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say, do not even be angry. Do not even insult them and do not even say, you fool. One of the things I enjoy about these passages, we have probably heard a lot of this stuff before. I'll throw out another popular saying you may have heard. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Anybody told that when they were a kid? Maybe you have young kids, you've already said that too. You know, there's a reason nobody tells adults that. Because adults have the life experience to know that that's just not true. The point we're trying to convey is nice, right? We're saying don't worry about what people say about you. Don't, worry about, don't let yourself be hurt by what other people say when maybe they're being mean or making fun of you. It's a nice idea. But you notice adults don't really say this to other adults. Because adults know that the life experience you have as an adult has probably proven to you that that's really not true. People have said things to me that hurt quite a bit. Should sure the same has happened to you? I'm, I'm not a particularly physically angry person. I don't get riled up in a fight very much. I've certainly gotten riled up and said hurtful things, unnecessary things. I would bet that most, some of our most hurtful experiences are probably from things people have said to us. Probably things said by people we care about very much. Words hurt a lot. Especially when said with the intent to hurt or the intent to injure, which is so often the case, you, you ever get in a fight or an argument with someone and you, and you snap back something cruel or something mean, and you might not even mean it. You might not actually mean the words you're saying, but you just you say something because you' are just you're wanting to hurt that person. Words can hurt. The Bible condemns hateful speech in all sorts of places, Proverbs 29:22. A man of faith serves up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. James writes extensively about the tongue, and in James 3, 5, he says, How great a forest set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The Bible condemns hateful speech many times. And we can have a lengthy discussion on this phrase, righteous anger, that is used sometimes in the Bible. And if such a thing even truly exists... But the Bible is clear there is no positive fruit of anger, or at least not of words spoken in anger or in hatred. Later in the same sermon, Jesus says in Matthew 7 16, You will know them by their fruits. And what positive fruit is there from speaking out of anger? Jesus tells us that anger is the sort of inner violence. That we might tolerate or we might accept more than external violence. But he says anger is the sort of inner violence that is really no better than physical violence. Because he says physical violence, even that most heinous, violent act of murder, first begins in the heart. And so he says purge this anger from your heart. He adds that if anger is what stands between you and your brother or your sister in Christ... That you you should so urgently seek to resolve that. He says, don't even come to worship. Don't even go give your gift to the altar. If you're on the way to the altar and you remember, go be reconciled first. He says, be reconciled quickly. Don't let the anger in your heart simmer. If you've been in any single relationship counseling 101 classes, you've probably heard, don't go to bed angry. If you're me, I just forget and wake up the next morning feeling fine, which is very, very bad when the other person has not forgotten, for the record. That is not a recipe for success. They say, don't stew in your anger. Don't let it simmer or even fester and lead to violence. Jesus says, do not murder, but do not even be angry. Be reconciled, and be reconciled quickly. The second example, verse 27 You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus' interpretation in this section is very closely related to his interpretation of the first. And his application is is really just something that anybody who's been guilty of verse 28 already knows. That that adultery or really any sexual morality first begins in the heart. It first is known in the heart. And I believe Jesus' few verses here cut to one of the biggest saddest attacks on marriages and family that really happen in our society today. And I think that's because we have accepted and tolerated lustful behavior. We've normalized it. even encouraged it. We, we, we It's almost expected for, for men to see and treat women as objects who exist only for their pleasure. And I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge that, yes, the reverse also exists, but... I guess I can only speak for one perspective on that. But both men and women, we, in society today, we celebrate the complete objectification of our bodies on full display. It is expected for men and women to do anything they can to pump up their physical attractiveness. Because they are told that's where their real value lies. Likewise, it is acceptable for men to only value women for their physical attractiveness. I fear we have removed all barriers of of shame or, or modesty when it comes to lust. And then we are shocked. We are shocked when families are torn apart by adultery and by infidelity. Jesus makes the two links between these things very clear. He says one will lead to the other. Sexual immorality will tear a family apart. And just like murder... He said it begins with a desire, a sinful desire that is not resolved in the heart. James 1.15 tells us, After desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Temptation can lead to sin. But, But it doesn't have to. I think if we're willing to go with Jesus, if we're willing to call it what it is... Sin, even adultery of the heart, then we can cut it off. We can deal with it. We can handle it. I'll say one more thing about verse 29 and 30 here, and we'll move on. But I would argue that there are a number of apps, social media or otherwise, that you can use from your phone very quickly and very easily can cause you to sin in ways you otherwise would not. It is better for you to lose an app from your phone than a person from your life and your wife or your children from your life. If you would not do such a thing for your spouse or your family, Jesus says, do it for your soul. If your Facebook account causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. You're better off with less friends than being thrown into hell. If your Snapchat causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. You are better off losing friends than losing your whole body in hell. We'll move along. Verse 31. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I don't think it's a coincidence that this falls right after the section we just discussed. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus starts this section with every one of the heavy hitters he knows or has in the bag. Comes in hot. This verse has come to be very influential on Christian teachings and perspectives on marriage and divorce. And and then we will address the implications of this in Matthew 19 or a lesson further on down the road, I want you to know. But divorce and remarriage is actually not really what Jesus is talking about right here. His teachings on that topic are valid, don't misunderstand, but that's really not the topic at hand. The topic at hand, as you know and as we have said, is righteousness. To understand what this has to do with righteousness, we have to really kind of understand that in the Old Testament, under the Mosaic Law, there there were a variety of reasons a man was allowed, or some translations say permitted, to put away or divorce his wife. But note, this was an allowance. In zero places did the Old Testament commend or recommend divorce. As Jesus makes clear in Matthew 19, he says, Matthew 19, 8, Because of your hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. But through various mental and legal gymnastics at the time, based on their construction and interpretation of the law, the Jews had a variety of reasons by which they could obtain a legal, temple-sanctioned divorce. They had taken something that was granted really as just an exception or an allowance, and they had made it a matter of course. So, Jesus responds, to get divorced for any reason, to get divorced for any reason except sexual immorality, is adultery. But really, the bigger point at least in our context of Matthew 5, the bigger point is that the Jews had taken the law, they had taken their technically focused interpretation of the law and created a structure by which they could legally, they could legally be allowed a divorce for many reasons and say that they were in accordance with the law. But in reality, they had lost the honor and the respect that both Jesus and the law call God's people to have for marriage. They are once again technically obeying the law, but missing the point. And so he says, do not just get divorced for any reason. Because to do so is on par with adultery. His next teaching is very similar in Matthew 5.33. Again you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. But you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is another one of those that's really difficult to grasp, I think, out of the New Test- Old Testament context. But what's funny is the Jewish culture at the time was actually very similar to our culture today when it came to swearing by the name of the Lord. There was a practice in the Jewish community, we actually see this even in 1st and 2nd Samuel, that when someone wants to convey just how serious they are, of their testimony, or how serious they are of their actions, they'll they'll swear by the Lord or they'll swear by the Lord's name or they'll swear by their own head. Saul makes repeated threats in this vein as do many of David's enemies and sometimes even David. Now, this kind of swearing was not expressly forbidden by the law. Only false oaths and false testimony. Another of the Ten Commandments that gets referenced in this passage. But Jesus combines this command against swearing falsely with the command not to take the Lord's name in vain or not to take it lightly. And Jesus says to invoke such a high name, such a high authority. In the everyday affairs, of man is just is foolish, is reckless. (laughs) Jesus says instead, his followers should be the kind of people who can simply say yes or no and be believed. They shouldn't have to invoke the name of the Lord just for their testimony to be valid. They shouldn't have to swear just so that people believe they will follow through on their actions. He says no, his people should be people of integrity. There's no need to perform oaths or swear by anything and thereby run the risk of breaking them and breaking the law. But he says, Let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. These last two the last two sections Jesus deals with will kind of deal with his one big section. So these are the heavy hitters. These are where Jesus starts to call us into some very, very hard relationships. We begin in verse thirty eight. Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here is where Jesus' teaching becomes more than just a new and challenging interpretation of the law. And I would say here is where it turns into becoming completely radical. Up to this point, he's just been interpreting the law very broadly. He's been saying that, well, the law forbids murder, it forbids adultery, it forbids swearing falsely, but I tell you, don't even be angry. Don't even be lustful. And you know what? Don't swear at all. Because anger leads to murder, and lustful intent leads to adultery, and, and swearing leads to breaking your oath. What Jesus is saying is that Moses gave you the law, but why would you want to engage in any behavior that would lead to breaking? He says it's not enough just to just to define yourself as people who are not lawbreakers. But he says instead be people who are actually seeking to please God. He says, righteousness. Entire. Be perfect as your father is perfect. Full holiness is what's pleasing to God. You could think of it this way no parent wants their child to become a criminal. No parent wants their child to become a, a career criminal, a habitual lawbreaker, someone who's in and out of jail and has, has problems with the rules and the laws of the land. If you were to go ask many of the pregnant women we have in our conversation, what are your dreams? What are your aspirations? What are your goals for your child? None of them would just say, I just want them to stay out of jail. Go ask parent of a teenager. You might get a different answer. Got two more years, Lord. He's a junior. He's about the other house. Just keep him. Straight and narrow, and out of jail. But if you go ask a, a young mom, that oh, I'm an astronaut, or an accountant, or a lawyer, or a doctor, or a great speaker, or a minister, or a great father, someday have kids and a all these great dreams and aspirations—they would never say, "Why well, would you settle for them being someone who doesn't end up in jail?" And the point of that is, there's a lot of middle ground. There's a lot of middle ground between someone who's a a career criminal or someone we consider maybe an idolized or upstanding member of society. And in all these first examples, Jesus is saying, you've just settled for not being criminals. That's all you're doing. You're just defining yourself as not a criminal rather than actually seeking to be upright people as God wants you to be. But here, here Jesus cranks it up one more notch. He quotes two more laws, two more laws that are straight from Exodus and Leviticus. But at, by this time, they had really entered their culture as, as common standards for how people handled relationships and how people sought justice. There were two things. If someone hurts you, first, hurt them back. And if someone hates you, hate them back call Jesus' teachings here radical, because they are incredibly, I would say, almost impossibly countercultural. Almost. It's certainly countercultural for the Jews who only follow the law. It's countercultural for the Greeks who had their own system of ethics and justice. And I would say even they're very countercultural today. because if we're being honest with ourselves, we love the lines that Jesus quotes in verse 38 and 43. We love those lines much more than the rest of what he has to say about them. We like the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We like loving our neighbors and hating our enemy. Every hero in every action movie is a cool, strong, masculine, tough kind of character, right? You're the kind of guy that everybody wants to be like. The kind of person who, man, if someone hits me, we hit him back ten times as hard. They started the fight, but by golly, we're going to finish the fight. We don't take being disrespected. We don't take insults and attacks lying downs. We fight back. That's how we handle things. Is that Toby Keith song about boots, donkeys, and the American way. That's right, buddy. You mess with us, we're going to hit you right back because we're big and we're tough. And we fight back. We get even. We don't just get even. We do it worse. We believe that kind of stuff. Christians believe that kind of stuff. I think Christians tend to believe that kind of stuff because we say and we profess belief in God. But when it comes right down to brass tacks, we ultimately believe in ourselves. Vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. Deuteronomy 32:35, 30 Romans 12:19, these are not enough for us. We want vengeance ourselves. When someone wrongs us, we don't want to be patient for the end of time when God is going to sort it out. We want it to be right now. We want it sorted out now. We want something to be done about our pain immediately. But this is exactly why Jesus' teaching is so radical. Because he calls us. Jesus calls Christians to be people who are better than the people of the world. He says twice at the end of the chapter, two different ways. He says anybody, anybody can love just those who love them. He says anyone can greet only brothers. He says Christians ought to love even their enemies. Christians ought to befriend even those who are strangers and aliens to them. In my experience, Matthew five forty four is a verse that is often discussed but rarely practiced in the church. We will sit around and we will think, well, how exactly did I love my enemies, right? What, is it? what exactly does he mean when he says, pray for those who persecute us? I mean, almost every church bulletin lists prayer requests, but I've never seen somebody say, you know what, pray for old man Johnson down the road. He shot my dog and he really doesn't like me very much. Pray for Mr. Jones up the street because he really just wishes my whole family was dead. never seen that in a church bulletin, probably because that sounds insane. It does. But that's the kind of love that Jesus calls us to have for people. It's insane. It is easy to love the lovable. Doing that does not impress God. In Romans 12, Paul says, he's quoting Proverbs. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And then he adds, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These are the kinds of ways that Christians become the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Because the world is full of people who only love those who love them back. It is full of people who return hurt for hurt, who return hatred for hatred. But he says the church should be full of people who show love to everyone, even our enemies. We begin to sort of wrap up this morning. I want us to think about that, it, that Jesus is especially qualified to call us to this kind of love. Because Jesus himself loved sacrificially. He loved his enemies. He loved Judas, for example, to the very end. Do you think it's a coincidence that Jesus calls his followers to pray for those who persecute him? In Jesus' dying words as he is hanging from a cross. With his wheezing last breath he looks down and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That is the kind of radical, prayerful love we are called to have for even our enemies as they drive the nails into our feet and our hands. Christ can call us to this kind of love because it is this kind of love He first showed us. To be a follower of Jesus is to go far above the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It's not just showing up to the temple and saying the prayers and and giving your gifts. To follow Jesus means purging the anger Ridding yourself of lust. It means being a person of integrity. Not just someone who upholds the rules, but someone who doesn't even need the rules to be righteous. It means loving your enemies. Praying even for those who hate you. Those who persecute you. It means having a righteousness that comes from a clean heart. Because that's what Jesus did. He loved us when we were unlovable. He took on our sin by facing death on the cross that we might have opportunity for eternal life. If you're with us this morning and you call yourself a follower of Jesus but do not behave as Jesus called,